What's up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm here in Zoomland with my man, Fernando Hernandez. Normally, I would I would explain who Fernando is, who he works for. But because of, of just the gentleman that's sitting in front of us, he's such a high performer. He holds many different roles. Uh, Fernando, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, share who you are, what you do, and uh, and then we'll go from there. What do you think? Absolutely, Justin. Thank you for that. So, yeah, my name is Fernando C. Hernandez. I'm an appointed business ambassador to Scotland. And I've held that appointment since I was 33. I'm 39 now. So that gives me a global view of working with different continents on a transatlantic level. And it's just very exciting. In addition to that, I'm an award-winning mentor to Scotland, Scotland's Net Zero Technology Center. That award is backed by BP, Equinor, Accenture, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Field Company. I'm also the chairman of Carbon Capture Storage Brazil's International Board. This is what really provides me with a pronounced global overview on technologies and energy. I'm a chairman at the Marine Technology Society. I'm also an advisory board member to Red M. This is spearheaded by Houston's most beloved individual, Mr. David Reed, who's yes. the chief technology officer at NOV. I'm also selected Forbes contributor, and my energy insights are featured in Yahoo Finance, oilprice.com, Society of Petroleum Engineers, Market Insider, the Journal of Petroleum Technology. I'll stop there because it's a very in-depth list. And I'll just say that I'm a philanthropist to nonprofits and other entities some which I do not disclose because it takes away from the sanctity of giving back. With Velocis, I hold a commercial remit and we have partnerships with the likes of Bechtel, Oxy Low Carbon Ventures, British Airways. I'm also the principal at Hernandez Analytica where I connect continents and technologies. And lastly, I promise you, I, the list ends here. I'm an, I'm an advocate for technology and energy and the uncle to amazing nephews and nieces. That's wow. my favorite part there. So yes. No, that's you know, so that's great. And, and I appreciate you humbly describing a lot of that. And before getting into e any one of those, Fernando, like, have you always been someone who's because you, you're clearly not a go to work from nine to five and call it quits and go home and 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 you know what I mean? Like just relax. Like you're clearly going nonstop. Um, how do you divide your time to where you're not being a disservice to a lot of these. Like how much time does it, a lot of this stuff take up? Because to me, that just seems like you do so much. It's like, how do you actually pro like provide a concentrated effort into any which one? Can you like, cause that it's very inspiring to hear that. But to me, it's like, how in the hell do you have time to do anything if you're doing so much all the time? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, I, I've known my purpose with technology and energy since I was four. I received certain books. Uh, one of them was on cyborgs and technology. And, you know, so when I came of age at 20, left to Scotland uh, to work on ROVs and robotics, everything came full circle. So for me, it, I'm truly fulfilling my life's task to fulfill the equation of where I want to be and need to be and where the biosphere needs to be in the context of energy and technology. So that doesn't keep me up at night. That drives me every minute and morning because... I'm, I, I feel very humbly and fortunate that I discovered my life's task at such a young age, at four, and to not give it the time and the continuity and that impetus 
would be a disservice to my four-year-old self. So that that really is the core of, you know, what is time? You know, right. time means different things to different people. But for me, it's to fulfill the equation of what I believe is my life's task. Wow, that's fascinating. And I think that's very unique because, you know, and I'm sure you probably have friends and and people in your social network that, you know, as we get older, the, the, the oftentimes the question is like, what's my purpose? Like, why am I really here? And and I can promise you at the age of four, I was probably more concerned about eating my boogers than I was fulfilling my life's task and energy. Uh, so I think that's obviously really unique. But for those that are listening that that like clearly you had a vision and 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 you kind of had a, a, some clarity on why you were here and what what your path was going to be. I'm sure it's been like a river kind of winding, but like, do you have any advice for those kind of sitting back and maybe they're in their mid thirties and they're like, I just, I've got all these skills. I know I've got passion around energy or whatever that might be, but I just can't figure out like how to sort of narrow that energy and and get on the right track to then really fulfill my life, my life's duties. You know what I mean? Like, do you have any thoughts or ideas around that? Yeah, no, I I think it goes back to, you know, when we were kids and, and, you know, that's when I really discovered technology and, you know, it's kind of that, that childlike inclination of what excites you, like what gets you going. And for me, I, I was able to tap into that. Um, you know, this isn't a Scottish government interview, so I can say it. I, my family does come from a tech background. So I did have that exposure to technologies and, and, and cyborgs and robotics, but that's not just special to me that like people could have different exposures that I didn't have, which I don't, I don't know what those are, but I'd love to hear about them. But that was my experience. And that's what I know to be the genuine truth for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so with that is that childlike and, and not because one thinks like a child, but it's more to the point of the, the discovery. So when I'm working, you know, right now with the Nezio Technology Center, I'm mentoring five startups. Um, oh, so I'm up really early in the mornings, four in the morning, working on weekends. But again, it's not working. It's fulfilling my life's task because it's connected back to my purpose. And so from that purpose, the purpose needs to be defined, I believe, at least, by what are your pillars? So my core pillars are FIDA, family, integrity, technology, and altruism. And if I have those four things that drive my purpose, then my purpose shall be fulfilled, even if it's just for that day. And, wow. and that gives me enough momentum to carry the next day and with that excitement. So if I'm working on a Saturday and Sunday, it's for me, it's not work. It's fulfilling my life's task. And, and I, I know not everyone may relate to that or maybe they do or maybe they take inspiration. Um, you know, I, I'm not a fan of like saying I'm a workaholic. No, I'm fulfilling my life's task, taskaholic. That, wow. That's my specialty. Well, I think you bring up some good points. And and, and again, the reason I, I wanted to kind of hang on to this topic is because I think it's, it's it, a lot of people can relate um, and, and may have had the question, like, how in the hell do you do all this? And But where I think you, you kind of tied it back to it, and, and we'll move on after that, is just talking about like the four pillars. I think identifying those first and foremost uh, is, is super critical, right? Like I think most people kind of get stuck in this hamster wheel of life and they're on the hedonic treadmill trying to figure out like what's next, but they don't just take time to really understand what it is they truly like and, and what drives their happiness. Um, but then tying it back to like what you loved uh, as a child, right? And whether that was sports or whether it was like yourself, technology, maybe you loved science, but then you ended up in accounting, whatever that looks like. I think it's just kind of like peeling back and, and looking back at what you love doing and what drove you to happiness as a child, because that that ultimately can kind of help point you in the right direction. 
um, at the very least. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Absolutely. I, I think that was, that was super valuable. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to give a big shout out to Mark Rosano, uh, you know, mutual friends. I think you've may have known him for, for quite a bit, uh, longer than I have, but he's the one who made the introduction. I've been, uh, kind of networking and, and working alongside Mark on just some sort of side project stuff, uh, a little bit lately, but, um, he made an introduction to you, which I'm absolutely super pleased for. I'm curious, how do you know Mark and, and what does that relationship look like? Yeah, so Mark Rosano and I, and, you know, shout out to Mark, you know, he, he's been a very incredible person. And I think that's another thing to have is, is, is mentors, but also peers and, and people that bring the best out of you. And, and if people don't really do that, it's, it's, uh, it's hard for you to really elevate, expand, evolve and elevate, expand and evolve. And, 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 and that's the message, right? It's like, okay, I've got to get a group circle of friends. Okay, that's great. But for me, it's expand, elevate, evolve. And, and, and I'm very blessed to have people like Mark in my corner. And, and what does that mean? You know, it means macroeconomics. It means getting involved in really awesome business flows with technology and energy and learning how to dissect the markets. And it's, you know, when, when your forecasts are in Yahoo Finance UK, um, you know, this might be a bombshell to some, but I don't even have a university degree. I never took a journalism class. But I'm a very faithful student of the game and a faithful uh, individual to those that are very faithful to me. And, and that inspires uh, inspiration. It goes both ways and it's, it's very contagious. And from there, you know, to be featured in Forbes and, and things of the sort, you know, I, I link to individuals like Mark. But coming back to Mark, you know, I know uh, Justin and Mark are working on something very exciting. I can't disclose it, but uh, stay tuned, watch that space. But yes, Mark, uh, you know, I've had the the pleasure and the privilege to meet with him and, and uh, his people that are very close to him in New York. So that's wow. the kind of person I am. I will pop up in your country and, and show you that's where I'm at or a city I, for that matter. Yeah, no kidding. And so you say, so where are you based out of right now? Like where are you Presently, sitting? I'm based in Houston, oh, okay. uh, but I'm liable to be at any given place at any given time. I've been to over 50 countries um, okay. and have had deployments on land near shore and offshore um so yeah I, I started off as a field hand so that's why they always say that the, the some might say the best lieutenants must first make the best grunts and and so i'm a very good grunt i like yeah. turning wrenches no that's uh and and so you and i no wonder we get along so well uh because I, I actually started off by being a rig hand cleaning toilets on a drilling rig uh and scrubbing and painting and so it's it's hard to complain when you come from the dirt, as they say, exactly, because um, it's all upside from there. You know what I mean? Like if I had to go back to it, so what? I know I can get myself out of it. So uh, I, I think there's some uh, it sounds like we're cut from some of the same cloth. Um, well, then knowing you're in Houston, I'm in Houston. I don't know if you recognize the building behind me. But with that said, uh, we'll have to do this in person again sometime or at least grab a coffee or lunch. But anyway, we'll take that offline. The, the listeners probably don't care when or where we're meeting. but. Um, are you so you mentioned Scotland, but are you where are you from originally? So I was uh, I, I come from Mexican ancestry and raised between the U.S., Mexico, Scotland. But for me, like what I also pride myself on is being a global citizen. Right. So, yeah. you know, if, if I've got to be in the Middle East, if I've got to be in Africa, if I got it. I mean, the only continent I have left just cards on the table is Antarctica. So it kind of gives you a breadth and depth of like you know, why I love international business, right? You know, it's a wow. global uh, endeavor. It's a global 
uh, initiative. And, you know, if we get to that point where we start talking about net zero and the energy basket, it's like, we're only going to get one biosphere. And, you know, one thing that is true to me is if I pop up in your country, if I show up in your country, like when you're respectful to others, most of the time people are going to be respectful to you. And yeah. what, and then from there, it's that camaraderie, that trust, the, the, that beautiful exchange of ideas and saying like, I, I haven't seen, I don't even know you, but the brain is a beautiful thing. And so is the human connection. And so that's what I love about business first and foremost is that ability to connect on a global level with many people. And so that really motivates me, right? So Scotland yeah. for me was the land of opportunity. It opened me up to being like, oh, wow, you know, there's this big world out here. And so like several passports later, uh, well, I have to renew passports because they run out of places to stamp. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but again, that that is just a testament to like my proclivity for for the biosphere and to you know share this earth with others and have others share their space of the earth with me, whether it's mentally, proverbially, or or physically in terms of how they live. You know, I think it's a it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, well, I think that's a great segue into to something I, I'm curious about, and and I I, I sense a, a good answer coming from you. Um, for yourself, when you you what you've witnessed, and especially at a global perspective over the last few years, are there any core beliefs around energy that you've changed your mind on over the last few years that that kind of has re sort of calibrated your thoughts as we move forward? For me, it was uh. The Macondo incident of 2010. I wasn't going to talk about it, but here we are. Um, okay. You know that that impacted uh, the Gulf of Mexico quite deeply. I was supposed to be deployed on that project, and so that made me look at energy and safety. Very important, right? Because whatever we want to do, you know, whatever that next wave that comes out, you know, we have to be judicious with safety. We can't have people not coming home. We can't have incidents. Um, you know, are, are certain things avoidable? Yes. But are things preventable? Absolutely. And so that for me was a turning point. Also, you know, spending time with Mark Rosano and getting, you know, the ideation phase of what is the energy basket? That, that was very critical for me because, you know, and shout out to the journal Petroleum Technology. They, they featured uh, my thesis on the energy basket, but that came with Mark Rosano's inspiration uh, above all. And so the energy basket is a way where it's not a zero sum approach to energy where it's like oh i'm renewables or you know i'm hydrocarbons and, and then it's just this very divisive thing that doesn't have to be because you know to reach whatever targets we want to reach or to be whatever we want to be at you know it requires collaboration you know we look at the haber bosch process that creates hydrogen right as you know we're doing it now right it's been out for over 100 years. So when you get CH4, which is natural gas, you go through steam methane reformation, and that gives you the hydrogen and that gives life to the world. We know it as ammonia or fertilizer. From a molecular standpoint, it's NH3. So if we try to get away from natural gas, we're saying, okay, we just hit the 8 billion mark in terms of the population globally. But if you look at the data, that was due to fertilizer, the Haber-Bosch process. So hydrogen is not nothing new. There is a new hydrogen economy. But all that is to say, and to come full circle, is without natural gas, we can't have life on this earth the way we know it. And, and that's a very key topic that is lost, where it's like, 
there's this thing called oil as a commodity and another commodity called natural gas. And natural gas as a feedstock gives you hydrogen with steam methane reformation. And statistically, over 99% of hydrogen produced on Earth comes from natural gas. Only 1% comes from green hydrogen. Right. That's interesting. And so what, what's your sort of take around, you know, again, we kind of alluded to it earlier, but however you want to label it, whether it's energy transition, expansion, the basket approach, um, you, you gave some really good color. And, and I actually ended up stopping. I'm like, no, share this on the podcast. <laughs> uh, right. Right. But uh, again, I appreciate the, uh, you know, just the, the, uh, the passion behind it, but you started talking about energy transition from like hundreds and, and just for like for years, like historically how we've transitioned over time. I think it was very kind of interesting how you how you put it. And so could do you mind sharing that again? Yeah, no, I, I'd love to. And, and yeah, no, it was such a kind of discussion. Um, and one that I'll elucidate further here is the fact that, you know, the, the first energy transition, you know, we, we can't be revisionist of his, history. And I use this the term can't very strongly because the data tells us otherwise. And data is objective, data cannot be argued with. And so the first energy transition started in 1840 when coal overtook biomass. That's following Vaclav-Smil's data points by way of the 5% metric. That was the first energy transition. We've had three, but let's peel thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years before then. Before we reached the 1840 benchmark, humanity wasn't using coal on a pronounced level, right? We first had this thing called somatic energy. The time the somatic energy came about, uh, you know, I, I just got back from the Middle East, one of the uh, longest living civilizations. I visited the ruins, predate 9000 BC. Wow. What am I getting at and what am I speaking to? Somatic energy is the human's ability, and in very top level, of course, the human ability, or let's just call it one's ability to break down food into kinetic energy. Without that, we would never have had 1840. So we have to safeguard somatic energy. And that's why fertilizer is very key to me. Uh, there's technologies that are coming about, which I'm absolutely fantastic, that are very fantastic, which produce uh, sustainable fertilizers in, in a different way, topic for, for maybe later on. But the point is we have to protect somatic energy and that's our ability to convert that into kinetic energy. Then if we look at it historically, we had the year 1709. 1709 is when Abraham Darby started to use coal for iron smelting. This led way to what we call the Industrial Revolution. But something else happened along 1712 that is forgotten, and that is Thomas Newcomen's uh, invention on the steam engine. So steam engines weren't built for, for planes. Sorry, not for planes, because people talk about EV batteries for planes. But what I'm getting at is, it, it wasn't for boats, it wasn't for railroads, it was to pump out the water from coal mines because in England, it rains a lot. So if you look at the history of all the patents that were filed, Thomas Newcomen really used the steam engine to pump out water so you could go deeper and go lateral and continue to dig for coal. So then mm -hmm. we reached the first energy transition in 1840 and then very quickly in 1915, it was followed by oil. And then in 1930, it was natural gas. So we've had three energy transitions that I don't believe to be, but the cloth spills data points speak to. So there is no such thing as an energy transition. That's the singular. It's the plural, energy transitions. There isn't expansions. There isn't these other terms that people are now looking at. 
What I say to look at is the history and the history will tell you by way of data why there's transitions. Not me, I'm just a conduit of the data. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's fascinating. And so, I mean, where do, what, what's your sort of take on sort of the timeline and goals with respect to say net zero? And I mean, do you... Do you suspect we're on track? Do you think there's a lot of sort of unknown, well, say some things that, that don't aren't necessarily looked at uh, objectively that would perhaps inhibit our ability to get there? I mean, what's your sort of take holistically around that, that, that topic of net zero? Yes. So net zero is a very important topic, right? Because again, I pride myself on having visited this globe many times over. And when we look at net zero, you know, you have the developing nations and then you have the developed nations. They're both gonna have their view on what that looks like. And what, am I, what do I mean? You look at Guyana reaching prolific discoveries. You know, the, there's a reason Saudi Arabia is quite interested in Guyana. Um, they're on a path to a million barrels per day. First oil, I'll never forget this, was 2019 Q4. Discovery at the Liza Field was 2015. So they're now seeing, you know, even the International Monetary Fund was seeing the growth from a GDP perspective. And so that's what we're speaking about is there's a correlation between CO2 emissions and GDP growth, a nation's growth, right? So to tell a company, or sorry, a nation like Guyana that, you know, thou shalt decarbonize, well, the G7 nations, which includes Japan, Canada, and others, it's like, well, you already reached a level of prosperity. So you want to decarbonize, and, and, and I get it, that, that makes sense. But what about these nations that are now on the path to prosperity as developing nations? Are we just going to kick the ladder down and not let them have the same kind of growth? And by that logic, you know, if, if we just look at the data, right? This is data is agnostic and, yeah. and data is data. We look at the data, the amount of CO2 emissions that, you know, different reports outlined was, wasn't caused by developing nations. It was caused by developed nations. So therein lies the conundrum is that we will see that developing nations have their own pathway and that's incredibly uh, ambitious and developed nations will have theirs. And that's also incredibly respectable because who gave the developing nations the pathway of what they can achieve economically and from a prosperity standpoint and for their brothers and their sisters in the region in which they're in, the developed nations. So the answer is not very clear. However, I do believe that 2050 is a number to be respected, to be abided by. Will we meet everything by 2050? Perhaps we will, perhaps we won't, but it sets a target. It sets a de deadline to where things aren't just getting passed, 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 and pushed further, further out. So it does create a deadline. Will it be met? Time will tell. But a deadline is required to be able to then benchmark, to be able to have metrics and key performance indicators. So I hope that answered the question. If not, I'm yeah. happy to explain further. No, 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 it, it does. And actually, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, a lot of these developing nations that are trying to get out of energy poverty. It, it reminds me of something that um, I, I learned about. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the environmental Kuznet curve hypotheses. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Okay. So Right. So for, for the listeners that don't, it's it's a hypothesis basically that suggests that the environmental pollution increases at the beginning of economic growth. And then once it passes a certain level of income, then the economic growth allows environmental 
remediation, which is what a lot of us countries and nations are experiencing now, but a lot of, you know, a lot of nations, you know, but India, perhaps, you know, places in Africa and a lot of places throughout the world, um, you know, again, it's like, let us just have access to energy. We're not really worried about pollution quite yet, but we will, I promise you, <laughs> but we just want to get out of energy poverty and have access to a lot of the necessities, um, that, that allow us really to flourish and thrive as nations, you know, to, to, you know, increase our GDP, get hopefully caught up to the rest of the world, relatively speaking. Um, and then together we can collectively, uh, you know, remediate a lot of the environmental issues that we're experiencing today. And so, um, but you know, it's, it's interesting because you know, out of, in my mind and I've spoken and again, I don't have quite the, experience like you have traveling the world so i am very limited on that front but houston here fortunately we have a lot of people that come uh and uh they immigrate here mostly for work a lot of times um and whether they're engineers or doctors or people from all over the world and and a lot of folks that i've come across that are from overseas and places that do experience energy poverty they're they're often like oh you know i just i don't know we it's hard to it's hard to align with like decarbonizing and and it's almost like some form of not necessarily punishment. It was, that was a word used. And, and I don't know if that's maybe the correct term, but it's like, why would they, why would they try and, you know, not allow us to access re, like cheap or re, abundant, reliable energy, um, you know, with the hopes of just making sure that we decarbonize and, but the re, sort of the rebuttal there from folks that I've talked to as well is it's like, well, a lot of these places actually could increase their solar capacity and could increase their wind and and perhaps hydro if they're geographically positioned to do so and so the argument which and again like i try to be radically open-minded to to try and at least uh acknowledge what i don't know and try and draw maybe cleaner conclusions but it's just like to me it, it makes sense it's like why not give these folks and especially if they're sitting on a ton of reserves like there's places in africa that sit on a shit ton of natural gas like mozambique for instance they sit on i think six six hundred and 30 TCF uh, of natural gas, whereas the US is roughly the same. Like that's mind blowing to me. Um, politically, they're having some challenges and the government and all so on and so forth, but all else equal, it's like, wouldn't you want to promote that, uh, you know, to some degree? I mean, what's your thoughts on on that topic, you know? And you know, yeah, no, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, that, that really excite me uh, beyond belief. Um, I, I will just say this quick tidbit, you know, I was in the Far East, I won't name what nation it is because I have too much respect for it. Um, but, you know, I've been amongst the shacks of where people live and where they're using cow dung to produce the, their food. They don't have any running water. Um, and I'm never one of those people to say, because I saw that, I'm so appreciative of what I have. Like that, that's, I don't work that way. I saw their experience. That's the reality. My reality is my reality. And just how can I help is my philosophy versus, oh, they live in such impoverished, what some would say impoverished conditions. So therefore I feel better about myself. You know, that's, that's, hmm. that's the way that some think and, and not me, but having seen that, right? Like I've seen the most EV friendly vehicle and it wasn't even EV in this part of the Far East. People still use bicycles and they have people in the back, right? Not tourists, but people getting to work. And I'm like, yeah. That is the most awesome net zero way of transportation. This guy's <laughs> going on the bicycle, two people, and then it's a long line of these bicycles that, you know, this country hasn't evolved to where everyone can afford vehicles. So if we really want to 
you know, decarbonize, hey, get rid of Uber, pull up a bicycle and have people go for it. And this country's done it. And, you know, but with that being said is, are people willing to make that sacrifice, right? Yes. And that that's a question that one has to answer within oneself. But coming back to what really, you know, again, got, gets me really excited is, there's a project in West Africa that uh, I've had some involvement with. I, I can't disclose more, and I know you're not asking me to, um, but they're sitting on a lot of reserves. They're at the point of bringing them online. And if I'm getting really excited, it's because it's very exciting. Uh, yeah. The amount of CH4, right? Like for me, it's not natural gas. I call it CH4. Molecularly, it's CH4. Oxygen is a natural gas. CO2 is a natural gas. CH4 is a beautiful molecule. And so with this CH4, what a certain European company is endeavoring to do because now their investors will not let them flare because they're traded on a certain European stock exchange. But right. what they're doing that's very awesome is that they're going to electrify this part of Africa, right? So you can maybe have a mini LNG facility. And that's what Ru the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, which is unfortunate, it has shown that the world is short on molecules and that that need is there and it will continue to be there. We can't get away from that. But coming back to the CH4 molecule, which is liquefied and becomes LNG, if they electrify this certain company, electrifies this region of West Africa, it'll be a beautiful moment for me. I think it'll be a beautiful moment for, for many people because you know we talk about electrification in the in the developing developed nations, sorry, but in developing nations, they're about to create electricity for three adjacent countries, interconnect those electric grids. And now people are going to be able to read their books at night and, and study. And, and, and you know, this has been shown in India where there is a correlation between higher education and, and something as simple as light, being able to read at night. If you can't read at night, you may have a candle, but is that really good for your eyes? I mean, there's a lot of data and documentaries on this. I, I won't go into that. But my point is that CH4 is going to electrify this part of West Africa with the view, as mentioned before, CH4, natural gas, is the precursor for creating hydrogen. So this nation can be a hydrogen economy uh, in the Haber-Bosch context, whereby you take CH4 and you create this awesome thing called hydrogen that gives life to the planet. Wow. No, that's, that is crazy. That that's very fascinating. And, and and again, it's just interesting to hear, you know, clearly you have an inside look on a lot of this stuff. Um, and, and so I wonder, like, because like to me, and us, it seems obvious, but where do you think the biggest hurdle is? I mean, do, do you, are there a lot of like, because I, arguably most people in the world would say, yeah, we want to help others. And, you know, we'd love to be able to support and do the rest of it. Um do you think you know, on a very macro level, like government and greed and power, I mean, I don't think that'll ever go away, but do you think that'll kind of inhibit our ability to get everyone out of energy poverty? Or do you think everyone's aligned and it's just everyone has a different idea of how to get there? So what I like to think is like, I don't, I'm not trying to change the world because it's vast, it's 8 billion people, but I try to change the world around me. Yeah. So if that means, again, popping on a plane and, and showing you like, hey, I'm serious, I'm in South America, like, let's pursue this energy uh, endeavor, or wherever I, I may jump on a plane and go do it. Uh, you know, like yourself, I come from the field, boots on the ground, right? Whether I'm sweeping, mopping, or sitting on this desk, it all pays the same. So 
I, for me, I have that, that, that humility to just kind of like, let, let's get on with it. And so I'm very, the rubber has to meet the road, right? That, that is my philosophy. And, and so I only get involved in projects that A, are bankable, B, the rubber meets the road, and C, aren't just rhetoric and saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm working on this low carbon um, initiative and I have this title that says I am. Well, like, all right, well, let's, let's, let's pull the track record out. What does that look like, right? And, and for me, it's like, my, mine is open. Go ahead and, and pull it. I'll, I'll submit it to you. And, 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 and why do I say that? It's, it's not to have this... Uh, this kind of uh, abrasive tone, but the rubber has to meet the road. There has to be actionable steps. And yeah. if we get lost in rhetoric, we get lost in circularity and circularity does not lead to forward momentum. And so that's that's what I mean by that. And to the point of, of, what, of what you asked, I think it needs collaboration from a micro and a macro perspective. You know, you need people in government, you need people that are technologists, you need people that are uh, you know are into energy? You need nonprofit organizations, and you have to bring that all together to get all key stakeholders involved in understanding why we're doing what we're doing. And just to quickly go back to that Africa project that I mentioned, West Africa, or other projects. So, like, what really got me excited about that project is they were going to sequester CO2. I can't say too much, so that's why I'm saying they were going to sequester. But when you start looking at carbon capture storage in West Africa to use the molecule, because CO2 as a molecule above ground, you know, it's used for fire extinguishers, you know, so, so shout out to CO2 for putting out fires. You know, it's used for, you know, when people take medicines or when you're for dry eyes for, for medical purposes, it's used for people who like drinking their beer, shout out to CO2, that made it possible. There's so many uses for CO2 above ground and also below ground that it is a valuable commodity. And so coming back to Africa, we can repurpose that CO2 and have a company create indigenous drinks in that nation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And not only that, with CO2, you can create olefins or that's just a fancy way of saying plastics. Yes, we have to get away from plastics. But in the meantime, let an economy have its own growth by repurposing what would have been wasteful molecules. And that's what goes on with flaring. And I digress with, with, with the following on flaring is that when I see flaring, it, it, your CH4 is such a beautiful molecule. Like, why would we do that? But I know why we do that, because it's a generational thing. Just like when we see emissions out of vehicles, people are like, well, why should we stop it? It's always been that way. Well, yes, it's generational thinking that goes back to, to you know, three, three plus generations I remember Mexico City in 1989, we had El Dia de No Circular, which means the day of not circulating your vehicle. The, the smog was so bad that like you would, um, you know, blow your nose and it would be filled with smog. Uh, my sister has asthma. It's, it's hurt, hard for her to breathe. And mm. so we couldn't circulate vehicles on purpose to promote using public transport, to promote using vehicles that weren't emitting. So for me, this is very close. It's very personal because I've had to live it. When I go to India, if I'm in, for example, not New Delhi, New Delhi, there, there's parts of India where you go to oxygen bars just to be able to breathe oxygen. Forget about wow. the beer, but to breathe oxygen. And so what I'm trying to get at is if we work with developing nations to where they can produce a greener barrel, there is a duty of care to do that. If we can produce that greener barrel there's nothing precluding us apart from divisive rhetoric and philosophies yeah. and mindset. So that that 
that is a core message and that is a key message of why I'm here. Wow. No, I love that. Um, I want to switch gears and, and focus more domestically here in the U.S., um, you made a, an interesting post a few days ago describing the year-over-year change in U.S. oil data, which, you know, I live and breathe that um, sure. day in and day out. I, I live and die by rig count, basically, here in the U.S., and so that, that ca caught my attention. Um, share what you, you've you observed and, and kind of where you think things are heading as we move into, you know, throughout the rest of 2023 and then, you know, next year's election year, which is probably going to shake things up, too. Yeah, so when we look at that, I mean, uh, I dropped my thesis on Yahoo Finance UK. Um, so yeah, no, I nerd out on the EIA data on year over year very intensely. And, and that's the thing, right? When people are like, well, how can you be very passionate about renewables and, and oil? And, and I love the energy basket. So therefore, why would I prevent the philosophical and mental growth of grasping these energies that we're going to use for some time? And so to the core of your question, you know, the, the oil markets are in a conundrum because if we look at the 166th meeting, which took place in Q4 of 2014, that was when the oil war started. We saw 2015, the, the, the very steep crash. Then 2016, the markets lingered. Then OPEC, OPEC plus was created in 2016 with Russia. So what am I speaking about? is what we're seeing now is OPEC plus is now artificially inflating the market. We're having an artificial lift, not down hole, but on the, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's a play on words, but it's the reality. It, they're artificially lifting the markets. The US, uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, you know, was founded as a function of the OPEC, um, well, what was to become what we now know as OPEC the, during the Yom Kippur War in 1973. That's when the SPR was started. But if you peel back history, right? I love history and data. It was actually Iran proposed the SPR to the US way before the US even did it. And this is not conspiratorial, it's the truth. Uh, the data and the history shows it. Um, so to that point, with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve now being at a very, very low, that can no longer be used as an oil weapon as it was used last year when the conflict broke out. So therefore that did have an impact on sentiment. So if you looked at the data and you, you overlay data sets, that's another thing I like to do. So if you overlay the data sets, when the SPR announcements would come out, you know, the price of oil would start to, to taper. And again, other nations did work with the US to release their reserves. But now we're in April and there's this thing called hurricane season approaching in June. And you know, I've seen hurricane season. And so we have to be very careful and the U.S. hasn't made any more announcements on strategic petroleum reserves because if that happens and there is a hurricane that hits the Petroleum, petroleum Administrative Defense District, Pad 3, which the majority of the refineries are, are along the Gulf Coast. If a hurricane hits and we need to have crude available or oil available and the SPR is drained, the U.S. is going to face a day of reckoning that it hasn't faced. And that's not fear mongering. The data shows that the SPR has been drained very historically low to offset higher oil prices. So we come back to the year 2014, OPEC plus, some might say, are back in the driver's seat and are in a position to push the price of oil higher. OPEC plus is, is formed by Russia. And anytime Alexander Novak with Russia speaks, the market has to pay very close attention. And so we know that, again, there's an unfortunate conflict that is occurring. Russia is involved. So if you look at just microeconomic data points, higher price points are indicative 
and to fortify the copper of nations. So OPEC plus having Russia as a found well as a founding member of OPEC plus, the writing is on the wall as to my why they might have done that. Others may think otherwise, but the data shows what the data shows. Mm. So I, again, I, I think an interesting question is, and again, it's just, because you do look at the data. I'm sure you have somewhat of an educated thought around it. But but where do you think oil prices are going? I mean, I fundamentals show that it, you know we're we're somewhat oversupplied. But with the most recent cuts, um, demand over in China is kind of questionable. I just saw something this morning about um, actually Delta released, I think, their financials. And they're talking about uh, the amount of uh, just the flight demand uh, is quite a bit higher this summer than than what they expected, I think, is what it was. So there's, you know, obviously jet fuel demand is going to be pretty high this summer. Um, you know, and then, of course, there's a recession that everyone's talking about and whether we're in it or not. But all that being said, uh, what's your best guess on oil prices come getting into the end of the year? Oh, we're going, we're going plus $92, plus 93, plus 90. It's, it's coming. I mean, the price of oil is presently hovering. If you look at Brent, I follow the Brent benchmark. It's at $86. So when I say the price of oil, I'm categorically and specifically. So when anyone rewinds a tape two years from now, I will be on the right side of history. I'm referring to Brent crude, not WTI. So Brent will hit that that benchmark. We know WTI lags it by a few dollars, um, but yeah, no, it, it's going to go up because we haven't even entered um, driving season, or or you know when people in Europe start to go on holiday and people in the U.S. start to go on holiday. So that's going to put even more uh, demand pressure on oil. So it, it, it's going to go up um, for sure. What, what what has changed? in the US is that there's more discipline and diligence around how producing to produce, right? When we saw at post 2010, because offshore, uh, federal offshore by way of the Gulf of Mexico was the leading producing region on in the US, then Texas overtook it, right? Because fracking started to become what it became. It was kind of uh, spending by growth. And so therefore drill as much as you can and drill and drill and drill. But now there's a more tempered approach of you know, returning, ha having shareholder value. And also, I think it's also good for the oil and gas community that companies aren't growing at a pace that isn't sustainable with what the future can or cannot look like. And, you know, we're seeing that in the tech side, right? Um, that it's going cyclical. Forevermore, people were saying, well, you know, Facebook is a growth stock. Uh, Google is a growth stock. And and all these other tech companies, and they're having layoffs. So they're going through their cycle. They went through hyper growth, and now they're going into cyclical. So what I think it's great about low carbon and new energies and oil and gas all working as part of the energy basket is, okay, instead of it being this like this at all times, what if we add these other markets that people that have transferable skills are able to play? So when there's a dip, it's okay. You're still playing in this market. Mm -hmm. And what I say by play, adding value to you know people that are pipe fitters uh people that you want to get into ccs and and know how to you know where do you want to perp what kind of cement do you want to use you know what kind of packers do you recommend i mean that's all transferable knowledge and so that's what i'm really excited about is that people that are in the energy space can have a future that is bankable and transferable and that adds value to the biosphere because again we're not going to get to where we need to be in decarbonizing in the next two minutes. That's impossible. So let's be realistic. Let's be pragmatic. 
and let's think holistically. And so, yeah, I think I added a little bit more um, color to what you were asking, but hopefully it comes to the core of what we're discussing. Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, again, you, you answered it uh, very eloquently. Um, last thing I want to talk about, because we're getting up close to the, the hour here, uh, and I want to respect your time, is you have a rather large LinkedIn following, which I think a lot of the the growth hackers out there would love to have the number that you have. <laughs> Um, which again, I, I don't suspect that, that you hold that. And, and it's, I don't, I don't think the ego gets boosted by how many followers you have, but, but ultimately it's, it is important for someone that just likes to communicate and build community. Um, obviously you like to educate and just provide value to whether it's your friends, uh, over the phone or to the community that you've built over LinkedIn, but, but how have you built such a strong, uh, LinkedIn following and where do you see the value in something like that in hopes to encourage others to, to build a, a good community online as well? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I was validated and verified before LinkedIn. Um, so like I was already, already publishing like an offshore magazine and offshore engineering, like back when it was magazines and I was presenting at presentations, you know, one of symposiums, uh, was with with the father and the inventor of the capping stack, which thanks to him, we can now, Mr. Mario Lugo, uh, you know, a silent titan. He doesn't speak much, but what he does is incredible. You know, when I was at a symposium speaking in front of 400 people at a very young age, I mean, this would have been, I'm 39 now, it would have been 27. So I've, I've, I've had the, that splash of attention, but I don't let it define me, right? I don't let the E word get in the way, the ego. It doesn't, it, it just it doesn't move me. I, I had it. I had the exposure very early. But when it comes to LinkedIn, it's just to kind of leave, bring that humility and just kind of teach people and educate people. Like there's times where, you know, I'll have 45 people that are asking to follow me. Um, you know, if I look at my data here, I think last 90 days, it's like 600,000 impressions. And I don't pay for posts. I don't I'm not sponsored. I mean, it's, it's all organic, right? Like, I don't even ask wow. anyone to reshare. Um, so, you know, if you're creating value, like, that, that's that's my jam. Like, that's why I connect with people. Like, if I see someone that's, like, creating value or wants to add value, whatever that is, if it's nonprofit, if it's gover government or otherwise, like, I'm all for it, right? And I get really excited. So, so to answer your question is, you know, just add value. And, and leave the ego at, at the digital front door. And, you know, Justin, you're doing it as well, like with the showing the EIA data and, and all the slides. And, and I know how to find them as well. But sometimes, you know, we all get busy and I'm like, all right, great. He's done it. Like, like, OK, good on you, Justin, and good on, uh, you know, the company, because that that's creating value for me. So I just like yeah. to create value, like to create, uh, you know, conversations. And, you know, have I gone post that that? hit the the seven figure mark impressions yeah i've done it you know but it doesn't it doesn't define me you know and if you meet me here and if you meet me in linkedin or you meet me in person you're going to meet the same person because i'll i'll say it i'm no linkedin influencer i have been around some and when i meet them i'm just like oh right like i guess there's a digital self and a real self yeah. but i'm just now learning the difference between the two but i guess i just leave the the digital ego at the front door and <laughs> yeah. and uh, create value yeah. I, I hope that answered your question. It or maybe no, it I'm does. being too simplistic. I'm, my apologies. No, no, no. I, again, I, it's every answer is a good answer, right? Because that's your thought around it. Um, and so, it, I, you know, what my takeaway is is obviously, if you add value, 
and uh, you're obviously you're kind and, and it, I think a lot of it is intent right I think a lot of folks and, and just kind of speaking on LinkedIn um, yeah I, I started creating LinkedIn content um, I think it was like 2017 or 18 I had had it for a long time but but you know I, I used it uh, mainly to just share, like communicate to whoever wanted to listen but the intent was such that just helping others learn and and I, you know, I, I, I like to be goofy and kind of entertaining sometimes. And so I'll, you know, throw in some comical relief. And so if someone can, you know, read it and cause it, you know, social media has always been, and, and you know, I have my thoughts around this, but generally speaking, people will say social media is very toxic. And every time I open it up, it's negative. And so I, I like to try and take an opposite approach and, you know, make people laugh or smile or give people some different perspective. But again, the point being, if the intent comes from the heart, and it's selfless, then I think you're going to build a great community and, and people who you like to engage with and who align with your values and sort of what you're, what you're into, um, which you've obviously done. And so it's, it's just cool. It's, you know, there's a lot of people, like you said, they'll pay for likes and they'll, they'll add a bunch of people who have nothing to do with what they do. And uh, it's, it's like this form of, it's like a badge of honor to see how many followers you can get. But uh, I, I think that's just, uh, that's kind of, you're in a spiral out of control trying to do that. But anyway, um, and if I just may quickly add to that, you yeah. know, like, you know, you see some of the point, like the post where, uh, and I'll be very brief and to respect our time here is, you know, when I'll post like, uh, the net zero technology center just gave me a, a, a huge remit. You, you get to see everyone commenting, right. And it's like 40 people like that I personally know and, and, and and giving very deep. So if you follow me, these aren't like ghost followers. These are like real people. And with yeah. that comes really great responsibility for every post. I try my hardest, even if it's late at night, early in the morning, or what little break I have to respond to everyone. Like, hey, thank you. Or like, what do you think the next data trend is? And then I'll start like, you know, just kind of typing like as quickly as I can to answer everyone, not yeah. to dilute me, but because I'm just so excited. Like, wow, you took time out of your day to pay attention to me. The least yeah. I could do, and not that I need the attention, but they did give me their time. And that's what I mean by attention. It's like the least I can do is reciprocate that. And so that that's the hard part of LinkedIn is, is uh responding to everyone. So anyone that's hearing me, if I haven't responded to you, I promise I'll get to it. If it's a, a private message or, or a comment, you know, I yeah. it's really appreciated. I do no, this. I I highly respect that. And that's something since the since the very beginning that I've always tried to do. And so and to your point, like if you have, again, the large, mathematically, it just sometimes doesn't, it's impossible to respond. Like if you had 200 people respond to yeah. something, you'd spend, you know, all day and in, in, into the next week trying to respond to everybody. But to your point, a lot of times you do see folks who do have a rather large following will post something, but then you'll have a bunch of comments below and they don't even bother to engage. And to me, it just, I, I question the intent, right? Is the intent to like really build community and, and have conversation or is it to just spread a message and, and then gain more followers. And, and again, it could be either one. I don't know, but I do respect that. And that's something my wife, Nicole, she's also very big on LinkedIn. She spends a lot of time on there mainly because a lot of her clients and investors come from LinkedIn based from her, a lot of the stuff that she educates people on so on and so forth. But she does a great job of doing that. And she'll even She'll text me and be like, hey, I noticed someone commented on your post. Make sure you respond to them. And so we kind of help keep each other accountable because, it's, again, you if they're taking my the sister time does that. My sister does that. Yeah. Oh, she does. Oh. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. She'll even screenshot. It looks like, hey, look, this question's a bit contentious. 
but I'm sure there's a sensible way to answer it. I'm like, yes, Michelle, I'm, my sister's name is Michelle. Wow. I'm on it. So it, no way. Yeah, and, and so <laughs> okay. it's not just the good ones I respond to. It's also the ones that are contentious. And it's like, of course. hey, let's learn together. Um, 100%. But, but sorry, you were speaking about your wife. My apologies. No, no, no. It's again. So it sounds like we're, we very much play in the same sandbox <laughs> when it comes to, to building community, which again, I, I, I respect highly. The last question I ask, um, again, just to kind of loosen things up before we close out here is, uh, you know, again, someone like yourself, very active in many different roles, you travel, um, you know, we didn't touch on family, I'm assuming you have loved ones at home. Uh, you know, what do you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to your success, whether it be morning or night? I mean, surely there's something that grounds you that helps you disconnect something, whether it be meditation, reading, what does that look like for you? For me, it's family, you know, it comes back to my, the four pillars, okay. family, integrity, technology, and altruism. And family starts first for me. And, you know, it's um, making sure. So I, I got to shout out my nephews and nieces. There's only four of them. So I'll be quick. It's it's uh, baby Daniel, Emmy, Ellie, and Rick. And so to me, they're, 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 they're my life. They're the, so when I say my life's task to truly put it into perspective, it's the legacy. What do I leave for them? Right. Yeah. That's not monetary. What do I leave for them? So when they're of age, they go to Scotland, they pop up and they're like, that's part of the Hernandez family. What do we do now? What like what business flows can I inject them in meritoriously and technology flows? And that's what that that's what I'm building for them. And so wow. that's always exciting. And then there, there are a bunch of goofballs. Sometimes the little ones cry more than the others. But, <laughs> you know, that that for me is. Is everything and, and making sure that when I wake up, I know my mom will have approved of what I do and she's still alive, thankfully. So that her and my sister, if, if, if they approve of how I carried myself, then, then I'm, I, I don't need anything else. Like that, that's the ultimate yeah. thing. So family's really big for me that's and loyalty and faith and, and people being, and if I could just quickly extend that, like loyalty for me in business is everything, you know, it, it, I'm not, I'm not preoccupied with titles and, and um, these these other things is, is, is loyalty and, you know, just let's be good people. And if we can do that, then we, we can create a better tomorrow. Right. That's it. I mean, it's a beautiful answer. And so I'm going to double click on that answer and ask you. So when you get up in the morning, do you put your socks on and have a cup of coffee? I mean, what is Fernando's morning routine look like? <laughs> Man, to be honest with you, I don't know what next, every morning is going to look like. I have okay. no idea. My calendar, my calendar shifts. Uh, you know, I'm working across so many time zones. That, okay. uh, th the first thing, no, I, I take that back. The first thing that it, that always holds is just, um, pardon me, mom and sister, if I'm getting too detailed here, but uh, it's, it's just the warm uh, shower. Like that, that, that resets me mentally. Even okay. if I'm waking up at three in the morning or four in the morning, it doesn't matter. That's a hard reset. There and, it is. That, that, that really is it. And then the, the other part is, can I look at myself in the mirror? And that that is a self-check. And it's one that, you know, sometimes you you like it or looks back at you. And sometimes you're like, I can do better. And so right. you can always be better, right? So I hold myself to that same standard. And 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 yeah, just try to be a good person and, and be yeah. just smile. That's that's all we can do. We, we can't change the world uh necessarily it's like building people but we can change the world around us and that's, that's what i focus on that that's a cool i, I really like that I, i'm certainly going to hang on to that thought um and it's the warm shower okay so folks from every everything <laughs> you've listened to today the recipe for success is when you wake up in the morning 
you go have your hot shower and then you look in the mirror and say, who am I? And can I, am I doing a good job at that? That's, that's the recipe for success. Clearly. Um, no, I, again, I love that. And, and I'm sort of being comical around it, but that's, I always just find it interesting. People's mornings. But, but that man. is it. That is it. Yeah. You know, for me, it, it, it's, it's that it's, it's yeah. the warm shower. So it's <laughs> nice. my mother used to do uh, in. Yeah. She, she put that in our minds very early How about, cool. or at night, take hot milk and shower, but I reversed it because wow. I wasn't a good kid growing up. <laughs> I, I would, all I'm saying is, so I reversed it and I do it in the mornings now, but it's gotcha. something my have, mom instilled in. I mean, have you tried the cold shower? Have you switched the temperature up or is it, does it have to be warm? No, it's got to be warm to where like uh, <laughs> okay. steam is coming out and I've got to open the door because it looks like, I'm like, is this smoke? Oh no, this is, this is. <laughs> Dad's having his hot shower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Well, Fernando, this has been a, a great conversation. I respect your time and I appreciate your time. What's the best way for people to, to reach out? And what I'll do is I'll put the links in the show notes so you don't have to like spell out your name and, and the email address and all the rest of it. But LinkedIn, obviously, um, are there any other um, are there any other platforms that you play on Twitter or anything else? No, no, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn. And what I'm most active on is in real life. I'm uh, very active in real life. So that's okay. where I'm active. Perfect. You know, because, well, uh, yeah. yeah, digital self and real self. And I place the premium on the real self. So I'm very active in person. Right. Well, you sound busy. So I think if about 150 people reached out to you today, it'd be hard to line up an in-person meeting, but you can catch him on LinkedIn. He's always posting great content, again, valuable information, lots of stuff to learn from. Um, but again, for all the listeners out there, really appreciate your time. Thanks. Share this with somebody. Uh, and if you could leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to, um, it just, it helps sort of, it helps promote the podcast. Um, and again, with that said, always remember everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Peace.